Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. I know where that is. <laughs> I am in Berlin. Oh, sweet. We have a place in Berlin, too. Oh, you do? We're actually going to go there for New Year's and stay for a while. So, love Berlin. Well, it's very dark and cold yeah. and rainy, just as you remember it. There we go. <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Fnan, director of content at Steinway and Sons and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. If you enjoy Soundboard, please rate, review, and subscribe to it wherever you pod your casts. My guest today is Steinway artist Rufus Wainwright a singer-songwriter who is the son of singer-songwriters Kate McGarrigal and Loudon Wainwright III. He joins me to speak about his new album, Rufus Wainwright and Amsterdam Sinfonietta Live, on BMG. You wrote a song called Secret Sister for a film on Discovery Plus called Rebel Hearts, which, as I understand it, is about a group of progressive, trailblazing nuns fighting the patriarchy in the 60s in Los Angeles. Do I have that about right? That is about right. Well, as well as uh, as doing that, there was one nun in particular, um, Sister Corita, who, who was a visual artist, and she did all of the posters and illustrations for like the demonstrations. And she ended up becoming one of the most important kind of artists of the 20th century. Um, in her work. So there was also kind of a, a visual component as well. It was it was kind of across the board, whether it was for political purposes or for, you know, creativity or just, you know, women's rights. It was it was very the full package. <laughs> so how did you go about uh contributing to this project? Yeah. Well I was you know, I live in Laurel Canyon in, in Los Angeles and uh and one of the reasons I mean we're here mainly to, to be near our daughter, Viva, who lives here. Well, we, sh- we share custody with her mother anyways. But as well as that, you know, being in Hollywood, you wa- you're, you're, you're always on the lookout for, for projects. And, um, and there are always tons uh, that never happen <laughs> flying around that you get all crazy about. Um, but this one plopped on my lap, and, and immediately I had a sense that it was going to occur. Uh, mainly because the film was made. <laughs> That's always a good sign. That helps. That helps. Yeah. And then they asked me to write the song. And and actually, it turns out that I had a personal relationship with these nuns because uh, a relative of mine had gone to school with them. I was taught by them at, during that, you know, pinnacle of of their um, of their movement in the 60s. So so I grew up hearing stories about these amazing nuns, whereas most stories I have to say about nuns coming from Quebec which was very Catholic, were, were not so positive. <laughs> so yeah, so I just, it all, all the elements conspired and, and, uh, and here we are today. And I wrote this song. It's upbeat, it's inspiring, and I look forward to seeing the documentary on Discovery Plus. Another day begins Another flower blooms Another perfect song Another fallen star 
most recent album, Live with Amsterdam Sinfonietta. Yes. It reaffirms the title that I gave a feature for you for Listen magazine many years ago, which was The Throwback. People who still read can visit listenmusicculture.com, read that interview. I love how you are enchanted with classical forms. Yes. And it starts from the opening track, How Deep is the Ocean? Right. Which I feel is a powerful opener for you. Thank you. I wonder if you could talk to me about how you approached this classic song. To give it some kind of context in terms of why I do this in general, unlike my parents' generation and before, um, they really grew up in a kind of iconoclastic society, you know, where everything was was shifted and uh, the idols were broken and so forth. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, obviously incredibly interesting and, and a lot of fun. For my generation, and I think mine is kind of one of the first, really, it's really about picking up the pieces. <laughs> you know, otherwise there's nothing left, <laughs> whether it's art or the environment or, you know, political structures. So I find myself, I've always found myself drawn to the past and, and, and you know, just seeking out what, what, what really lasts and, and what really, um, you know, survives the test of time as a kind of a testament to it, the, its worth. And and certainly, you know, the songs of Irving Berlin are right up there. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's he's a, a great hero of mine for many reasons. I mean, one one is his his talent and his and and uh, and also his um, productivity. I mean, he wrote so many things. Um, but also, I love the fact that he was he was somewhat of an autodidact. You know, he didn't read music. He only played in one key, but he still kind of just forged ahead and became, you know, the most important songwriter of, of his. Of his, of his, and several eras. What key did he play in? He played with all. He only played the black notes, apparently. So is that G flat major? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those. Okay. Yeah, either yeah, either F sharp or G flat or one of those. Yeah. <laughs> How much do I love you? I'll tell you no lie. How deep is the ocean? Let's talk about Excursion à Venise, yeah. which uh, is an old Kate and Anna McGarrigal song. Yes, yes. I love this because I feel like, Rufus, there's this Venn diagram between French Canadian and a lot of Cajun songs. Yeah. I feel like this song would be at home on the like Fédodo stage at New Orleans Jazz Fest. Yeah, yeah. Is your natural speaking French more Montréal or more Paris? Well, I, 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 it fluctuates. Could you, for example, say, frankly, Jean-Pierre, I could really use a glass of wine? Yeah, franchement, Jean-Pierre, uh, j'aimerais ça un verre de vin. There it is. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I can do that. But that being said, when I speak French, it's, it's sort of a combination of, of several accents. You know, it's interesting because my sister Martha, Martha Wainwright, she lives in Montreal and uh, and her French is impeccable. I mean, she and and also, I mean, her boyfriend is is from France, but she really knows how to you know how to speak the language. I can I can understand it perfectly, and I can speak it pretty great. 
but uh, but yes, it's a combination of of uh, disparate accents, <laughs> including the English accent, because apparently French people love it when when English people speak French. They think that's very sexy, which is very hard to believe. <laughs> I think they love it when we try to yeah, as I, as uh, as rubes, you know. Yeah. So tell me about bringing this song back. Well, it's been one of my favorite songs of Anna's for for many many years. And what I love about this version personally is that it completes a bit the nexus between, or or it alludes to the nexus between like French Canadian folk music and maybe Baroque music, you know? Mm. At the end of it, there's a kind of almost like um, Handelian uh, outro uh, with the strings. And, um, and when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because that was, you know, all around the same period, you know, that, some, that the French Canadian folk music was probably written was was during you know when when the first settlers came so so it's uh it's not a stretch that early classical music has this connection to early french canadian folk music and i like to i like to draw that line Stay in Canada for All I Want, which is uh, a Joni Mitchell song, one of the greatest albums of all time, Blue. Let's talk about your cover here, which I think can naturally lead us to a discussion of how you approach something as a singer-songwriter versus when you're a soloist with orchestral forces. Because if Joni's just playing on her guitar and singing, she has a lot of rubato options, right? right? But this piece is let's say, strictly accompanied. Yeah. You're more boxed in, which I think trades rubato for more of a sense of urgency. Yeah. Tell me about specifically the challenges of this cover. What I love about Joni um, and singing her music is that you really have to cut the corners. <laughs> oh, tell me what that means. Well, just, you know, you can't, you can't get too, how can I say it? You can't be too... Um, you can't get zoned out by the music, which is easy to do, you know, because it's very hypnotic and it's very kind of, um, there's an impressionistic quality to it. But the reality is, is that you have to be kind of on your toes the whole time and ready to, to make these rather um, very subtle shifts, but therefore a lot more demanding technically, you know, because um, cause with her changes, I mean, if you don't, if you don't um, concentrate on them, then you kind of miss the magic a little bit, you know? Mm. So I, and especially with that song, I mean, there's just vocally, there's just so many little gems that you want to um, polish <laughs> uh, in, in one or two phrases. So I think that that's the kind of the conundrum I find with Johnny Mitchell is that on one hand, she sounds very um, free and very kind of open and kind of, um, you know, inclusive but then when you get to the music it's actually incredibly challenging and incredibly classical in a way you know Mm. she herself has that view you know she she doesn't totally care for most versions of her songs 
uh, if they're not sort of following the kind of exact chords and stuff like that. So, so it's, uh, and I like a challenge like that. Sounds effortless, but is actually rather strict. Yeah, which is, I think, kind of in an odd way, not uncommon. And some music sounds like it rewards, needs it, and other music, it's sort of more hidden. But all really good music needs to be um, kind of devoured uh, fully mm-hmm. with all the senses. <laughs> I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, 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 traveling. Looking for something, what can it be? Oh, I hate you some, I hate you some, I love you some. Oh, I love you when I forget about me. I want to be strong, I want to laugh along, I want to belong to the living. Alive, alive, want to get up and jive, want to wreck my stockings in some jukebox drive. Do you want, do you want, do you want? Take a chance on maybe finding some sweet romance now, baby, come on. There's a different sense of space when you're with an orchestra. Yeah. And I imagine that there's a lot of triangulation between yourself and, and the orchestra. I mean, yes, you in the end you you have to uh acquiesce. <laughs> to one person and the, and in this case it is the concert master so you let her um call the shots uh, eventually but she also has to be very you know respectful of my needs as as the soloist and so it's this uh you know there's this kind of triumvirate between me and her and the orchestra but um but that being said one of the great mysteries i've enjoyed all my life now or, or, or and, and and all the time that i've been singing with orchestras is there's a strange kind of almost like osmosis that occurs where uh you know i will sing with certain sections you know like i'll suddenly have this conversation with the this musical conversation with the uh, violas and and then and and, the, and maybe even the uh you know the harp at the same time, and there'll be separate conversations, you know? <laughs> um, and it's this strange kind of strata of um, messages that are going through my voice and, you know, the different parts of the, of the band. And it really is like a bunch of conversations going on at once. And uh, of course, I can't tell you what's being said necessarily, but, but I feel the, um, you know, the kinetic energy of that. And, uh, and that's, that's really thrilling. When it, when it works. And then there's times when it doesn't work. You know, there's times you can really feel like, the tr- especially happens with brass. <laughs> they're just on their own trip, you know. <laughs> and then there's other sections where they're really in tune with, uh, with, what, with what you're doing as a soloist. And, and that's just a total mystery. And it's, and it's wonderful to, uh, to experience when it, was, when it works. When it doesn't work, it's an utter nightmare. <laughs> brass players do have a, uh, a very individualistic personality they totally do they totally do one more song from this that i'd like to touch on uh and that's who by fire yes which has some real wonderful eastern flavor that really burns yeah well i mean the uh i can't remember the soloist name at the top of the song uh but she's uh, she's american and jewish and uh was very much you know playing uh a kind of traditional jewish type of lament i guess on on her instrument and then you know and then we 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 go into uh to to the song by leonard cohen and um certainly 
in Europe and especially in Amsterdam, doing uh, doing Jewish music has a has an extra weight to it for obvious reasons. So it's um, I think it's both important to do it and also important to keep on doing it, keep on doing it because of the history there. So and in Amsterdam too, because they really had you know the, the legacy of Anne Frank and so forth. You really feel all that <laughs> when you sing that kind of music in Europe. mentioned your daughter earlier so that takes me to one of my favorite songs of yours that i've always wanted to speak about and that's montauk which is special for me as a father of a nine-year-old girl i think your daughter's a similar age maybe a little older i just love how this song works because it doesn't seem like it should work yeah it has this insane philip glassy arpeggiated situation but it really transcends in it and it really triumphs anything you'd like to add to my uh <laughs> to my compliments. <laughs> yeah, I mean that song. What I like about that song is that, um, and I think this was like years ago. I had lunch with Tony Kushner, and he explained to me. Um, I guess I don't know what project it was he was working on, but it was something to do with songs, you know, explaining death to children, <laughs> and uh, and for some reason it stuck with me. But then, but then once I started reading my daughter. Uh, a lot of fairy tales, uh, especially Grimm's fairy tales, speaking of Germany, it's all about death. <laughs> oh, yeah. They don't play. Yeah, yeah. So so it's actually a very traditional kind of um, conversation uh, historically. So so, so, that, so I put it in that category of, of, on one hand, you know, embracing life and the present and looking forward to the future, but also remembering the past, you know, because my mother kind of pops up at the end of the song and we're all, uh, and we all give her, and sadly, you know, my mother, Kate McGarrigal, never got to meet Viva. She she passed away before. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, just that wishful, wishful dreaming. <laughs> Don't worry 
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Rufus Wainwright performing Secret Sister from the Rebel Hearts original motion picture soundtrack and Montauk from his album Out of the Game on Decca Polydor. From the album Rufus Wainwright and Amsterdam Sinfonietta Live on BMG, we heard How Deep is the Ocean, Excursion à Venise, All I Want, and Who by Fire. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.